Well, hello, Scarlet City. I am so glad to be with you in this moment and to talk about this really important, uh, this passage, this really great passage. You know, oftentimes when uh, I think about the culture of Columbus, the biggest issue with Christianity that our culture looks at is not necessarily theology or even history, though those are really uh, big, important things to process, but our culture looks at how Christians behave. Our neighbors, our academies, our workplace environments in Columbus, here in the Midwestern urban um, environments, uh, it's, it's interesting how we look at um, Christianity, not through necessarily the theology, but we look at how uh, Christians behave, and we find that to be a huge stumbling block uh, towards accepting Christ or being a Christian or, or walking in Christ-like ways. The ch- Christians look compassionless. Um, the church is, is a sort of strange mix of outdated practices and an awkward dedication to um, really strange desires for people just to come and be in their building or be in their church. Uh, but there's not a, a deep community or an individual transformation that's happening, and therefore Christianity seems to be useless. So about 10 years ago, I was having a really deep conversation with an incredibly smart friend and a very influential person here in Columbus who wasn't a Christian at the time, but uh, he had some real questions and opinions about Christian faith. And so we talked through some big theological topics. We even talked about Uh, some of the history with crusades and and Christians um, taking it upon themselves and the killing of Muslims and and pagans. But uh, the biggest question that was in his mind was, why is there so many different denominations and different churches everywhere? Uh, For him, seeing that scattered thing was something he just couldn't put together. So I waxed eloquent, of course, about... Uh, the different convictions people had about the Bible and how, how it leads to different practices and how these kinds of things divided people. And he got that and he, he understood, but he still couldn't let go of how Christians handled differences or worked together, why they didn't work together. And, and because to him, it was weird what Christians divided over. It seemed weak it, 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 to... Um, seem so divided and not pursue relationship with one another. And I think if we as Christians could unbury ourselves from our own tribes or our own political influences or our personal values, we might be able to see some of the, the silliness that divides us. Not that we shouldn't have convictions. Of course we should. Um, and we should have opinions. But we, we have to see and ask, what is the bigger vision that God is asking of us? That's why I think we need Paul's words in Philippians. So we've slowed down uh, over the past few weeks to kind of hover over Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where Pastor Jay has looked at how the gospel of Jesus Christ unites us with conviction and unites us with comfort and encouragement. And today I want to continue in that train of thought, in that, in that thinking, uh, to talk about what it means to collaborate for a greater purpose as Christians. And, and Jay asked me to lean into this idea because collaboration is 
basically my vocational work. One of my biggest roles in the city right now is bringing different Christians together to love and to serve and to share Jesus with uh, our city more effectively, more prominently. And so I think about this idea of collaboration a lot. And it's easy to see that the Apostle Paul, he thought about this unity and this collaboration a lot as well. If you can imagine the first century uh, church, the first century city that Paul was looking at, he's starting these churches in cities where religious Jews felt like they owned the, the, they owned the, the, the stake in God and who he was. They owned all of that. And yet he was preaching to Gentiles that salvation was for them and, and basically everyone that wasn't Jewish. So all these different backgrounds, these different races, these different personalities were now gathering together at the same church and God's heart for them is to advance God's kingdom in this world together. So Paul had to think a lot about this and show them Jesus' way. He's pointing them back to Jesus. Verse 1 gives us the grounds for true unity, and then verse 2 speaks to the results of this unity. I mean, you look at the phrase, being in full accord, or being united in spirit. The literal translation here would be being one-souled. One-souled. I mean, can you imagine the church being one-souled with people sitting next to you or in the church? I mean, I can't think of a deeper way to talk about what the church is together. So what does it mean to be united, one-souled, or in our modern-day language, collaborators? It means that we have to have a common purpose, a larger vision of the gospel. And I wanna make the case that it has to be um, something that you obsess with. This vision that Paul is giving us is something that he was obsessed with because it is the, 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 ve- the very thing that brought people together. So let me, let me start by contrasting a little bit to how we, um, how Christians, um, even though they say the word gospel, often miss the vision that Paul is thinking about in Philippians. See, Christianity's orientation can easily shift away from God's vision to us um, to, to our vision of ourselves. So there's, there's this idea of formalism, which makes the purpose of Christianity to participate in church activities like Sunday, come on Sunday, or small groups even. Good things, of course, these are good things but they can easily become the thing that Christianity becomes about. Or mysticism, where we are looking for that spiritually emotional high or experience that really gives us purpose. And then another example is activism, where we see the obsession of the church is to take action for the poor and the oppressed. Now, we can be about good causes, and we should be about good causes to work together. While all of these parts, all of these parts are part of God's vision for us, they can't hold up as a big enough vision. They aren't big enough in Paul's mind, and they shouldn't be big enough for us. Ultimately, we can't meet for church activities because, well, right now we're in the middle of this virus, this dumb virus that keeps us apart. And ultimately, we can't depend on the emotional high because 
you and I know that it fades. And ultimately, we can't obsess about a cause, a certain cause, because causes change. And if we obsess over it, we get burnt out. So there's some contrast. But the bigger question that, uh, the bigger obsession that Paul is thinking for us is, is something much larger that he's wanting us to look at, that he's wanting us to capture. Well, we have to stop then and remember the context of this passage. Paul starts his letter by orienting us to the gospel. It's a refocusing. I mean, if you think back to chapter one, where he addresses some of the Christians who loved the credit and the attention that teaching about Jesus had gotten them. It gave them this sense of identity and this sense of purpose. It's like being a pastor or a missionary gave them an identity that felt so important and this entitlement came along. And, uh, and we see this in our day. We know churches like this. We know pastors like this who just find this grandiosity in themselves um, as a pastor or as a, as a church. Now, I know, of course, Pastor Mike or Pastor Jay don't live like this, but we see a lot of other um, people and churches that kind of do act like this. But Paul says, he says in the beginning or in the middle of Philippians 1, he says, I know that's dumb, that selfish ambition. He knows that that narcissism is not healthy and is not good. Uh, But he is wanting to show that, well, they're preaching Jesus. So let's dig in to help them. Let's come alongside them. Paul sees some, some are different, but he also sees that there is a bigger vision. Christ is proclaimed, he says in verse 18. He says, Jesus is the vision. So that's still out there. And after that, after that, at the end of chapter one, he tells us in verse 27, only let your life, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and I see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Because again, the church's proclivity is to go our own way and do our own thing and make it about ourselves. You know, we, we do that. We get the matching t-shirts and the really flashy Instagrams that pull all, put all the churches to shame, right? Paul wanted to address their behavior that was not in line with the gospel. I mean, look, look at this. If you've got a Bible and you're looking at chapter one, Paul rapid fires this refocusing, saying your partnership in the gospel, verse five, the defense and confirmation of the gospel, verse seven, advance the gospel, verse 12, proclaim the gospel, verses 14 through 18, and live out the gospel in verse 27. So what I'm saying is that Paul was passionately obsessed with this vision of the gospel. He knew that if the whole church all the Jews, the Gentiles, the male and female, all the races and backgrounds, if all of them could obsess over this similar vision, then more collaboration, more one-souled purpose would come out of that. Now, the big question that we have to ask, Paul uses the word a lot, gospel. What is the gospel? I mean, it's a word that we toss around a lot today, and it's a word packed with so much meaning. But simply, it's a declaration of good news from God to you and I. News that the sick are healed, 
that the dead will rise and the lost are found because of Jesus Christ, God's only son who came to renew all things. See, Jesus lived in a way, uh, uh, he lived this way for us to follow, but he accomplished an eternal union with God through his death on the cross and was raised from the dead. So him dying and rising unleashed the power of God's kingdom into history, into the whole world, and into you and I. But the good news that is applied to us is that we, as, as God's creation, were made in his image. We are absolutely beloved by him. We still have rebelled and we said no to that. We've rejected that. We've sinned and, uh, and we've sinned against one another. So if you've been following, even following the City Group uh, video series, you've heard uh, the phrase, we are sinners, yes, but first we are beloved sinners. This is the gospel. I mean, did you get all that? I know that was a lot. There, there's more that could even be said about that. But that's, our, that's our summary for today. And all of that is wrapped up into this one word. It's so much. But the good news is that Paul's obsession and, and, and with this and for the Philippians led to collaboration that was good and that was beautiful. And you know, I've read a lot of Harvard Business Review articles and entrepreneur and fast company and on and on about the most effective collaboration strategies. I've looked at all of the articles and read all the books um, about how do we really collaborate together. And the common thread that they all make, all these articles make, is that collaboration happens when there is a clear and compelling vision. I mean, you remind your employees or your coworkers, your, your team, the big vision. You know, what are you doing here? Why is this important? It's there, um, hardwired into us. I mean, all of the, the, the articles are saying the same thing that Paul is saying. It's like there's something hardwired in us that we want a big vision. We want a big mission. We want a big purpose to inspire our everyday lives. And Christians struggle to collaborate. It's like an unreal grind uh, to work together because we are distracted from that really big purpose that God has given us, that big vision that God has given us. We've begun to obsess over new methods or being more relevant to our coworkers or our neighbors or performing like church people that we've missed the worthiness of the gospel. And so Paul does for the church in Philippi what I want to do for us today. It's to lift your eyes off of yourself and look to God's vision, to get away from the efforts and the projects and the plans to start obsessing over the good news. My friend uh, John Tyson once said, I'm not going to just run with people who believe what I believe, but I'm going to run with people who want what I want. Some of you might believe in the gospel, but do you want it? A lot of Christians have a superficial belief in this good news. They clearly do, but is it what their soul wants? The gospel isn't just a belief page on our website, just written there, dormant, for somebody to see, to know where you stand, but it must become our everyday want, our desire, our deepest conviction. 
And what I'm trying to say is our obsession. And I want to make sure that we're not just looking far off. You know, we're not just gazing far away and seeing the gospel as something that's way out there, but I want to make sure that we don't miss the ground that we're standing on right here and right now. This, that, that we, we, we need to process how we take the right steps towards the big purpose that God has given us. And so what better place to look than Jesus? Jesus shows us the way. Jesus embodies so many of these unique traits that bring us together. And I want to point out a few of them that really can serve to guide us so that we can keep going towards that big vision, that big purpose. One of the traits that we see in Jesus is as him being a bridge builder. Jesus had a way to move toward people. He had a way of moving towards people that brought a depth to that person. He saw people with respect, with a dignity, with a love that very few of us have. Jesus, of course, didn't often agree with their ethics or their behavior or their practices, but he had such a high respect for that purpose that he started there. He started with the soul of the person and he began to build a bridge to their heart. Now, often we burn those bridges. We write people off if we hear they voted for Trump or if we see they put a Black Lives Matter sign in their yard. We see those things and we can instantly see the person, or we, we can't see the person, but we see their position. And that position then cuts us off from relationship to that person. But Jesus, he had a way of seeing through these facades and move towards us. The way forward for us is that we too can mature in building these kinds of bridges to become one soul, to see a person, to love a person, and to seek to find a way to a person, as Jesus did. The second trait that we see in Jesus is as a peacemaker. Jesus embodied this Hebrew vision of shalom. Maybe you've heard that word, shalom, which is, it's, it's, it's a Hebrew word which means wholeness and well-being, the full presence of what is good and what is right. It, it was an otherworldly contentment that Jesus carried with him, that he embodied, that drew people towards him, that people wanted to experience that. And he calls us as Christians to be peacemakers. In Matthew 5, which I know was taught on earlier in the year, Jesus doesn't just say, blessed are the peace recipients or blessed are the peace lovers. There's a lot of peace lovers out there, right? He said, blessed are the peacemakers. When we experience God making peace with us, then we look at our neighbors and our friends and we seek to make peace in relationship. So Jesus is a bridge builder, and Jesus is a peacemaker. And finally, I want to look at the fact that he is a reconciler. One of the biggest pain points we experience in Christianity today is the sin of partiality or racism. It's been talked about a lot. It's, it's unreal how much that conversation has come up in every day a, a community. Jesus 
He is taking these active steps to reconcile different people to one another, to show what his kingdom, show that his kingdom is not made up of just suburban, white, American, middle-class people, but he's actually wanting to show that his kingdom is made up of a ragtag group of God's kids with very different backgrounds and very different uh, responses and very different maturity levels. And so I think the best place to look at uh, when, G- when it comes to Jesus' way, I want to look at a case study. Two characters that followed Jesus' mission together. People that lived with him, spent time with him, uh, that I think is important to remember who they were. There's two people, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. You remember they lived together, they taught together, they walked miles upon miles together. They camped together. I mean, can you imagine the campfire conversations going on? See, Matthew was a dedicated Jewish outcast who loved fortune and glory. He made a path for himself. He picked himself up by his own bootstraps, made lots of money. And then there was Simon, the zealot. He's also called Peter same person. He's called the zealot because we know that he was a radical, blue-collar guy. The zealot meant he wanted to overthrow the government. He's part of a crew that wanted to overthrow the government. So you have these two different people, the raging capitalist and the raging anarchist, called by Jesus to live together, to do life together, and to help build his kingdom together. And guess what? They do it. How did they do it? How did they live like this? Well, two polar opposite people collaborating. It had to have been just an amazing picture, and it's a beautiful case study. They had simply been with Jesus. They just spent a lot of time with him because Jesus built a bridge to them in unique ways to draw them to himself. He calls them both in very unique ways to follow him after meeting him where they were. Jesus also brought peace to them. They knew they couldn't find peace in money. They couldn't find peace in a new government. And so he gave them a peace that surpasses all understanding. He gave them a soul level peace that brought a new desire into their world. And Jesus brought them together in this unique way. And then he taught them how to live reconciled to one another. And they didn't run away. They stayed. They stayed in community with one another. So if we have any hope in collaboration, to work together, to find a common vision, it's fully embodied in who Jesus is. So to those of you who might be hearing this, and you're ready to write off Christianity or give up on Christianity because, like my friend I talked about earlier, you see all the division, you see the ridiculous behavior, you see the dumb social media posts, and you're just like, I I just can't even align with this Christianity stuff anymore. Paul saw this in Philippi too. This is not something that is new. And you know what? Paul didn't like it. He didn't like what he saw. So instead of walking away, he calls them to the bigger purpose. He calls them to the gospel. 
he turns their head and says, look at this beautiful, this beautiful picture, this beautiful uh, uh, news, this beautiful proclamation. Paul knew uh, what, what I want to remind you of, that Jesus provides both the way to bridge building and peace and reconciliation, but he also gives us the resources to carry it out in our everyday lives. Some of you are wondering why it's not happening in my life. But I want to call you, as Paul does, to go to Jesus, be with Jesus, spend time with him, be around him, walk in his way, be his disciple. That's where Christianity is found. That's where peacemaking is found. That's where bridge building is found. That's where true reconciliation is found. And that's when we'll start seeing a true vision of collaboration happening. So what better way for us to end than just to go to him? So if you're a worn out Christian, if you're a non-Christian, if you're a seeker, if you're a skeptic, let's want a better vision, a fuller purpose. And it's found in the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's pray together. Father, we know we know that your vision for us is much greater than the vision that this world gives us. We know that it is better than any government, any diversity campaign. We know that it's better than any plan or strategy that we can put into place or our church can put into place. So right now, would you turn our eyes off of those things and turn our hearts and our eyes to you, to the good news that we may be transformed. And Lord, would that be, would that change us in a way that it changes our longings and our desires that we want to be with you, that we want to obsess with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.